Morning, New Hope. Glad that you're here. Happy Father's Day. I add that to uh, what Michael said earlier. I'm going to ask for something. I'm going to ask that if you're willing. Dads, granddads, dads to be. I wonder if you would stand with me for a minute. I know it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Don't, don't sit down. Stay up. Stay up, stay up, stay up. What I want to do is I want to pray over you, okay, for this reason. Know this, that across America, Father's Day is the lowest attended Sunday in the year. My son's church in South Carolina, they actually give away wave runners on Father's Day trying to bait people in. No, you can't go there. We're going to bait you in with the Word of God this morning. And that's, that's the giveaway. I want you to hear what God's Word says, not just about you this morning, but about everybody in this auditorium and everybody watching the broadcast right now, that God sees us as lights in this culture, and He uses us as lights in this culture for that reason. What I want to do is pray over you right now that you would be a shining example of a man who belongs to God in this year ahead of you. Would you pray with me that way? Ladies, let's pray together for these men. Father, I thank you for these individuals who are not afraid to show up in church on Sunday morning and are, are willing to be part of what you are going to explain through your word because of the power of the Holy Spirit. What I would ask, Father, is that as we take on the week as lights for you, as we take on the month and as we take on the year, that these men would represent well what it looks like to be a Christ follower in their family, in their neighborhood, in their social circle, in their business environment, Father, and in this nation who desperately need individuals like this to represent your kingdom. So I pray that your blessing would rest upon them and that you would use them as representatives of your kingdom. I now pray, Father, that for every one of us who are looking at your word, that you would guide us, speak to us, and lead us so that we can respond to what you're showing us. We pray for this in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen. Go ahead and have a seat, men. Thanks for joining in that. I'm going to ask you to go to Exodus chapter 25 this morning if you have a Bible with you. If you don't, they'll be up on the screen. The verses will be up there as well. But there's also Bibles in the seats around you. If you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles here at the church. They're out in the atrium on the information table. I'd love for you to take a copy of God's Word home with you so that you have your own copy of the Bible. I want you to note that last week we kind of skipped over chapter 25 all the way to 31 so that we could get to chapter 32. We want to be able to look at the golden calf incident. But what you'll see this morning is this is kind of like the prequel. This is what's going on in the background behind the episode of chapter 32 that you saw last week. All these things were going on at the same time. So this is kind of like going backward in order to go forward. But I want to start with Psalm 127.1, which says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain which means very specifically for anything to be of any lasting value whatsoever, it has to point to Jesus. He has to be at the very core, if you will, for what we're going to look at this morning. He has to be at the center of the camp, right in the middle, from our home life to our social life into our business life. And I recognize that's easier said than done because we live in a generation today that is completely unlike the generation before 
we live in a very difficult time, but we need to qualify that with what Scripture says. Scripture says we live in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. But the knowledge of that doesn't give us a pass. Let me take you to Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. It says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. How do you do that? Holding fast to the Word. That's what it says, holding fast to God's Word, holding fast to the Bible, holding fast to the Word of life. God's Word says, I recognize it's dark, but we need to recognize that it's no darker in our generation than it was in previous generations. In the first century, this was written to the first century church, and it was really, really dark at that period of time. It's always been dark since the fall of Adam and Eve because of sin that entered our world. So every generation has its own degree of challenges and faces its own struggles. We just accept the fact that the Bible says we live in a dark world. But God's Word calls us to shine as lights in the midst of that darkness. Now, if you don't know me very well, you would find out very quickly if we got to know each other that I am an optimist. I tend to see the world with a glass that's half full as opposed to half empty. And as an optimist, I am really confident that our society can be put back on track. Regardless of the fact that it's dark, I'm confident that God says He can use us as lights. But the reality is this, putting a society back on track requires effort and it requires focus and it requires determination. However. Scripture says, and it's saying very clearly, that if the effort is not for the right reason, if it's not ultimately for putting God at the center, that effort is actually doomed to fail. It has to be for God's purposes. Living in a dark world absolutely demands that we personally shine as lights if we're God's people. And the reason for that is He would use us to point the way out of darkness. And for the sake of our children and for the sake of our neighbors, they are totally worth it. So not just for dads, so you don't just feel the weight of it this morning. Moms, aunts, uncles, grandparents, there's a weight on your shoulder this morning if you belong to God. And the weight is this, that you would be stalwart and that you would be unshakable in your conviction that your home life will absolutely shine in your community. So, all the more reason for you to see that God has to be at the center, we're going to look at a passage that puts God right at the center this morning. Last week in Exodus chapter 32, what we saw is how quickly society can degenerate if God is not at the center, how things get completely out of control when society ignores God. Well, I find chapter 32 to be absolutely remarkable. Because while society is deteriorating at the base of Mount Sinai, God is up on top of Mount Sinai explaining to Moses what the future of Israel actually is going to look like, and He tells Moses how to build a visual aid. Dr. Mottier said it this way, a visual aid of a spiritual reality. That's what you're going to see described this morning. So what God tells Moses in the chapters you're about to look at is, Moses, I want you to build a visual aid. And I want you to build it right in the center of the camp where everybody can see it so that all of culture knows it's going to serve as a symbol of my presence in the midst of this culture. 
Look with me at verse 9, chapter 25. According to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. Now, I say it's absolutely remarkable, remarkable between 25 and 32 for this reason. When God brings out the plans for what He wants Him to build, both circumstances are going on. God's on top of the mountain showing Moses the future at the very same moment that the people are in rebellion against Him at the base of the mountain, and God knows that they're in rebellion because He's omniscient. He knows everything, yet He pulls out the blueprints anyway, and God can do that because He knows that His tabernacle is going to serve as the image of God for the entire nation. Here's what I want you to consider this morning. This is very weighty. Because God is in you, you are that light to your nation today. You are the light to your neighborhood, to your social circle. You are that presence of God in the midst of culture. That's why the author of Philippians says, you shine as lights. You've got to cling to the Word, but you shine as lights in the midst of that culture. Now, the purpose of the structure that you're about to look at is really obvious. God's going to dwell among them. He says that in verse 8. You see this? Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Very crucial because they're going to be traveling through a wilderness. They're going to be going to a region they've never been to before. There's going to be a lot of threats against them. And they're going to be making their way towards the promised land. So God is going to walk with them in a much greater way than He has with the pillar of fire because He actually intends to camp among them. The word that comes to mind is abide. You see this Hebrew word on the, sh on the screen, shakan. It's, it has the idea of lodging behind it. So God is going to abide or dwell right in their midst. Now, we understand that a building always has to start with a plan if it's going to be successful, and the tabernacle is no exception. God says, you're going to build it exactly like the details that I'm going to give you. Look with me again at verse 9. According to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle. So just like with Noah and the ark, Moses is going to build something for God's very specific purposes, and it has to be done right, down to the last detail. So God brings out a pattern for Moses to look at, some form of a blueprint or a model. The Hebrew word actually captures it quite well. This particular Hebrew word, tabneth, that you're looking at, when it's talking about a structure, the meaning behind it in the Hebrew language is this is like a 3D model that God brings out in some form. In some way, He's showing Moses what this thing looks like, and He reveals to Moses a prototype so that Moses can actually build the replica. Uh, we fortunately have things like YouTube today, and so we can get ideas of what images look like. I'm going to put a little image, maybe a 12-second video for you on the screen of what the tabernacle probably looked like as close as we can understand it. This particular image that you're seeing is with representation that the Spirit of God is over the tabernacle, and it has the curtain walls all the way around it. And inside is this building on the other side of the curtain wall that kept everyone out is a building that's actually not that large. It could fit inside this auditorium with no problem. It's about 45 feet long. Now, you might be thinking, wait, there, there are like a couple million people, but it wasn't intended for the public to come in. This is a place where sacrifices would be made and where God would be encountered and God would speak and the people would respond to what God had to say. 
So Moses is given this pattern for this tabernacle, which is not large, but it's beautiful. It's absolutely not dazzling, though, and it's certainly not gaudy. Well, this tabernacle is built into two chambers. The first room, like a tent that you would walk into, would be called the most holy place. And after you got past that, that that's where the candle, the golden candlestick was and the altar of incense and the table of showbread. But once you went past that, there was a big veil, a curtain that was drawn across. And beyond that was what we call today the Holy of Holies or what the Bible refers to as the most holy place. Now, historically, this is the most extraordinary structure ever because it's the only structure that's ever been designed and built according to God's specifications. Now, in light of that, here's something you may have never considered. Maybe you've studied the Bible for 50 years. Perhaps you've never stopped to think about why God wanted the tabernacle and the furniture inside to be what it was. Look at this quote from M.R. Hahn. He wrote this in 1960, and this may give you a new light. He wrote it this way. The blueprint, the design, and all of its specifications were minutely made in heaven, committed to Moses. Every single detail was designed by Almighty God. Every part of it had a prophetic, redemptive, and typical significance. And by typical, he means typology, a type of something. There is no portion of Scripture richer in meaning, more perfect in its teaching of the plan of redemption than this divinely designed building. God Himself was the architect, and every detail points to some aspect of the character and the work of the person of Jesus. It is probably the most comprehensive, detailed revelation of Jesus, the Son of God, and the plan of salvation in the entire Old Testament. Uh, we understand that now because we have the benefit of time. We can look back over history and say, yeah, I absolutely see how that furniture points forward to Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to look at one particular piece of furniture this morning that will help you understand how this ancient stuff pointed forward to Jesus. So one more time, look with me at verse 9 before we move forward. Verse 9, according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture. So notice, God made room in the budget for FF and E. Most of you don't know what FF and E is, fixtures, furnishing, and equipment. Okay, so God's really got to focus on detail here, and He's very interested in what's going inside it. And the very first thing He instructs them to build is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, earlier this week, every Wednesday when we have staff meeting, we usually talk about what's coming up on the weekend. And I told the staff that I was going to be teaching on the Ark of the Covenant this weekend. And I said to them, what's the first thing that comes into your mind when you think of the Ark of the Covenant? And I kid you not, in unison, they started singing the theme song from Indiana Jones. Dun, 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 dun. All right, it's going to be stuck in your head. So, since we're putting images up on the screen, we happen to have a photo of the original Ark of the Covenant. Let's put it up on the screen. I know it's not the original, but okay. Let me leave this on the screen for you for just a little bit so you really get it ingrained in your head. Why begin with the Ark? Why is that the first thing described even before God describes the tabernacle? He describes the Ark of the Covenant for this reason. The Ark is the single most important thing in the entire tabernacle system. If that's not there, you may as well not bother with the rest of the system. It's the most important item. Think of it this way. If the tabernacle is the center 
And God says it is. Moses, you're going to put it right at the center of the camp. If it is the center around which God's society, he's saying, is going to function, God says it's going to represent me in the midst of culture, then that means the Ark of the Covenant is the core. So let's think of it this way. A weak analogy, but if you think of a nuclear power plant, a power plant is a structure, a building built out of steel and concrete, but at the very center, at the core of the nuclear power plant is a nuclear reactor. That's right, Indiana Jones is holding a nuclear reactor in his hands, and he doesn't even know it. This is the core of what God's going for. So he says, first of all, I want you to make a box, and you're going to make it very specific according to my design because he's a God of detail. Verse 10, they shall construct an ark of acacia wood two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out, you shall overlay it. You shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four rings for it and fasten them on its four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. Now, the word for ark, this Hebrew word that you see coming up on the screen, it's in your notes, aron, this particular word means a chest that something can be stored inside of. Why is this called an ark? because it's intended to carry and to preserve really precious cargo, and it's going to be made of this acacia wood, which is really easily worked wood, and then it's going to be overlaid with gold. Now, a cubit is from the tip of my finger to the bottom of the elbow, and in most individuals, that's the common measurement. It's about 18 inches. I stand 4.33 cubits tall. Cubit is a very common use of measurement at that period of time. So the ark is roughly four feet long, and it's about 27 inches wide, and it's about 27 inches high. It's not large, but it's astonishing in its appearance. It's pure gold in its surface, and it's been overlaid with this gold to the degree that it's absolutely stunning, and it includes gold trim, and we don't know what the gold trim looks like because it hasn't been explained. It's nowhere found in the Bible, so it must have been part of this model that God showed to Moses. But what we do know is it had legs, and the legs would keep the chest up off the ground, and here's where it differs from what you saw on the screen. We're told that the rings that are in the legs are actually down at the bottom near the feet, and it had a very specific reason. First of all, the poles that would go through the rings, they, they were meant to keep the ark from being approached and accidentally scratched or marred, but also specifically so that when it was hoisted up, because the rings were in the bottom of the feet, it would be lifted over their shoulders, visible to everyone when they walked with it ahead of the people. So that elevated the ark above everyone. But the poles also served a lot of purpose in the order to not touch the Ark of the Covenant. So we're told this in verse 13. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the Ark to carry the Ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the Ark. They shall not be removed from it. And you shall put into the Ark the testimony which I shall give to you. So inside the Ark is going to go the Ten Commandments. Let's just check this again. The ark is going to go inside the Holy of Holies. Inside the ark is going to go the Ten Commandments. 
Eventually, Solomon is going to remove the ark and put it inside a temple in Jerusalem when they build that. But for now, it's inside the tabernacle, inside the Holy of Holies. And inside the ark will be the testimony, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments written by God Himself. And you might remember from last week, one commandment set, two tablets, one is God's copy and one is the recipient's copy, which I told you at that time was very common in the ancient world to produce two copies of a document, especially a covenant, and both tablets, both copies are to go inside the Ark of the Covenant. This is the covenant agreement. But the real significance of the Ark we haven't hit yet. The real significance is the lid of the ark. Today we translate the word as mercy seat. And so we find this in verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. And this particular Hebrew word that you're seeing is used no place else in the Bible except in reference to the ark of the covenant, kapareth. No place else did the Hebrews ever use it except when they're talking about this very sacred lid. And the term comes from to cover something. But I want you to think of it this way. When the Hebrews thought of covering something, they thought of covering an opening. So like you might think of drapes that would come over windows or blinds perhaps at your home that go over the window so light can't come in. They would think of covering as something that would separate one thing from another thing. Keep that in mind as we move forward. Now this lid is different than the rest of the ark because it's made of pure, solid gold. There's no wood involved and we get this from verse 18. You shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim, very important detail. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat so their wings are spread wide open but their heads are turned down looking at the surface of the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Now regardless of what you see in culture, when you think of a cherub, most people today, they think of a pudgy little figure that looks like a baby with a big fat face and wings on it. That is not a biblical cherubim. I don't know where that crept into society or how that appeared, but let me help you understand exactly what a cherubim is. Cherubim, first of all, are very serious guardians of God's holy presence, as they should be. They are supernatural, they are created beings, and they exist in the immediate presence of the realm of God. And Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel, wrote what he saw when he encountered cherubim, and we get a detail from what he wrote. Let me show this to you. It's kind of long, but just bear with me. Chapter 1, verse 5, in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. 
Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, the two wings covering its body. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. If the skies around us were suddenly to peel open, and we could look inside the realm of heaven, and we could perhaps peek at God sitting upon His throne and get a glimpse of Him, we would see these creatures, the cherubim, surrounding Him. And the seraphim, which are another realm of angel, they're flying over the top of Him. And Psalm 99.1 tells us this, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, now, the image of the cherubim should create an image in your mind because it's intended to represent these fiery beings in the presence and surrounding God. And God says, I want you to capture them in gold and carve them right into the lid of this mercy seat that's going to go on the Ark of the Covenant. And I want you to demonstrate them as worshiping me with their heads bowed and they're in my presence and so they will appear as fire. This means that the Ark of the Covenant was an earthly symbol of a heavenly reality, a 3D scene of a picture from heaven. So on the actual Ark, in the place above the Ark, above the cherubim, we're told will be an empty space because the cherubim sit, sit in gold on top of this lid, but above them will be the holy presence of God. And God gave Moses no instruction whatsoever to make any representation of his being. Any man-made image of God would be a graven image, and God said, you can't do that. So the space that are surrounding the cherubim in between their upraised wings is completely empty and devoid of anything, but it's filled with the presence of the living God. So we get this detail from Numbers chapter 7, verse 89. When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the ark of the testimony. So if you will, a, a voice emanating or vibrating out that Moses can't see, but he can hear. And God says, that will be my presence among you, and I will speak to you from that place. Now, the very purpose of the tabernacle is that mankind would learn how to gain access to God. And this God sits enthroned above these cherubim. Now, check this about what you've already learned. The testimony of the covenant, the Ten Commandments are enshrined in the ark, but they're at the feet of God. They're under God. And there's no image to symbolize God Himself, but the ark would serve as His footstool where the covenant was placed. And as long as Israel would be faithful to the covenant, 
that covenant agreement would always remain in His presence under His feet. Now, in the Hittite Empire and in the Babylonian Empire and in the Egyptian Empire, whenever they entered into contracts and covenants, they also would take written copies and put them inside a footstool and put them at the foot of the deity. Let me show you what Umberto Casuto wrote about this very thing in 1960. It was the custom in the ancient East to deposit the deeds of a covenant made between human kings in the sanctuaries of the gods in the footstool of the idols that symbolized the deity so that the Godhead should be a witness to the covenant and see that it was observed. So the tablets of stone, these are totally different than any other agreement before, written by God Himself with the finger of God, and a covenant has been made between God and the humans, and it's a visible covenant. It's not merely just a piece of writing, but it's representing a reality that that writing described. But God's people were not able to keep that covenant. And they broke the laws over and over and over and over again. And for that matter, what was actually in the ark, the law, could not save them. It could only condemn them because the law reveals sin. I've told you before, it's like a mirror. It shows us how dirty we are, but it can't clean us. Well, that's exactly what the law does. And so every time they thought of the ark, they thought of the commandments inside the ark, but they thought of the presence of God. And this is why the lid to the ark is so important. This is why it's called the atonement cover. Look again at the definition of kapareth. You saw this earlier. It's the same one. Last time we'll use this Hebrew word. A lid used only in reference to the ark of the covenant. And it's this place of atonement. Now, when the Hebrews thought of something that would cover something, they would think of a curtain, something that would divide off something that would separate, that would cover an opening. To call this a mercy seat is actually not referring to a chair, and it's not referring to a throne. It's referring to a location. In our world today, we would say in Washington, D.C., is the seat of government. We use the frame seat or the place of government, the place of power. We use the term seat because we know that's where power resides. Well, William Tyndale, when he translated the Bible into modern languages so it could be understood, he took this term kaphareth and he translated it as mercy seat, and the term stuck because it absolutely makes sense. It is a match for what it is. We understand that that is the place where mercy resides, God's power and His mercy in one location. So in God's design, He would allow this mercy seat to be accessed only once a year on the Day of Atonement. The ark's cover would actually be used in making atonement for sin. So here's what happened. First, the high priest would walk in holding a, 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 a cradle, like a, a bowl of blood from the sacrificed animals. And he would first offer blood sacrifice for himself, his own personal sin. And then once atonement was made for him, he would offer sacrifice on behalf of the people covering the atonement seat in blood. And once that was done, atonement had been made. In other words, the people were covered from the sins of their previous year. God's wrath had been put away. 
because life is in the blood, the sacrificial blood protected them from the wrath of God. Look at this quote with me from John McKay. He said, the position of the atonement cover above the tablets of the law makes clear that what is being covered is the penalty that is demanded for the infringements of the sovereign commands of the covenant king. So even the location of the blood is really significant for this reason. Above the law is God. You can't see Him, but He's there. His presence is made known. His voice comes forth and He utters His word. But beneath Him is the law, and the law only revealed sin. It exposed it like a mirror. But in between the law and God above is this place of atonement, the blood sacrifice that covered sin and turns away wrath. And because God is in their midst, He would not see the law that they had broken without first seeing the blood that had been shed, without the saving blood being visible to Him. So you catch the imagery? The perfect law of God and the mercy of God found together at the feet of God. And what accomplished this reconciliation? What caused it to even be possible? is the blood. And that's why Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, meaning there's no mercy if there hasn't been blood shed for sins. So God is above, and He's enthroned in majesty, and we're below all of humanity breaking His law and going against Him with sin. And if we're to be saved from sin, something has to come between us and this holy, perfect God, namely, a blood sacrifice that is acceptable to God. Now, today, sad to say, the Ark of the Covenant is gone. So what do people do? And even if it did exist, it could not do for you what it could not do for them. The blood of the Ark could only appease the wrath of God for another year. It could never erase sin. So if you know your Bible, you know where I'm going with this because praise God for Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Look with me at this. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once for all. Praise God for that having obtained eternal redemption. So we don't look to any ark. We don't look to any type of icon. We look to the Lord Jesus Himself as the source of the atonement for sin. That's what Scripture is making very, very, very clear. So our mercy seat today, if followers of Jesus Christ, we understand that the cross where Jesus shed His blood is where your sin was put away. The, the mercy seat then in the book of Exodus was a foreshadowing of what the ultimate sacrifice would look like. And that's why John could write in 1 John 4.10 this statement. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for sin. Now, you might think I'm done, but I'm not. Just give me a moment. You've seen today that God very specifically wanted His dwelling place to be built exactly the way that He designed it. 
and the reason for the attention to all the detail, even down to the thread that would be used, was designed to demonstrate what it means to have a relationship with God and how to have a relationship with God. Not just that we should have one, but how we can have one. Now, if you happen to be new to church today and perhaps you've not heard these things before, that your sin can be completely forgiven and that you can have an eternal destiny with God, if you want to know more about that after the service, I'll be right down here. I'd love to talk with you more about how you can know Jesus has taken care of your sin forever. We can talk after the service. What I'm about to explain to you, though, is for those of you who already know that your sins have been forgiven and you have a relationship with Jesus. The Bible is making very, very clear that just like in Exodus, God has come to live with His people. He's come among them. For us, He's come in the person of Jesus Christ, which was the very purpose of the incarnation. John 1.14 says this, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Greek word, last foreign word, I promise you, the Greek word is skene, and it's talking about tenting among us or encamping, dwelling, just like the God of the Old Testament. Your Bible is making an explicit connection between the Exodus appearance and the arrival of Jesus. Only this time, He didn't just pitch His tent. He became one of us. He actually took on flesh. And the greater reality of the person of Jesus Christ is that today we have become the tabernacles for God because of what Jesus did. The greater reality of Jesus is He gives us direct access to God. We don't have to go through a sacrificial system. We don't have to go through a priest. We can come to Him directly. So there's a reason the Bible says that you, your body, is a temple of the living God. You are a tabernacle. God is in you if you're in Jesus Christ, which means this. The tabernacle served as a symbol of light for the entire nation so that everyone would know that God was present. You, according to the New Testament, are now that light. The light of God is shining through you in the midst of a society that is prone to wickedness and darkness. So this is where we end, Philippians 2.14, do all things, look with me on the screen, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. How do I do that? Holding fast to the word of life, holding fast to God's word. So the stone tablets are gone. The golden lampstand is gone. The tabernacle is gone. Even the Ark of the Covenant is gone. But that's okay because they're just symbols of a greater reality that actually point to God. And I would personally, I hope you could say this too, I personally would not trade any single one of those items for the soul of any one human being. I understand it for this reason. God was certainly behind the design and the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant. And as magnificent as it would be if an archaeologist announced in the news tomorrow, I found the Ark of the Covenant in some remote cave. If that was true, it would still just be a gold box. For this reason, if God is not present 
as wonderful and beautiful as it would be. It's just an artifact, more to the point. God was never in the box. God was above the box. But the reality is God is in you. So therefore, you are more valuable than the Ark of the Covenant. You are precious to God. You're an eternal soul. First of all, because you were fearfully and wonderfully made, you made in the image of God, and you have an eternal soul, your choice is where you're going to spend eternity, either heaven or hell. But what I'm showing you today is you can spend eternity in heaven. You have an eternal soul, and God's saying, there's an atonement that's made for you, and you can be one with me. And if you follow Jesus Christ, God is in you, and because He is in you, you can shine God will shine through you, and through you, God can bring a nation back to himself. Your friends, your social circle, your family members, your coworkers, you can shine before them. I hope you believe that this morning. I'm going to pray for you that way. Let's pray together. Lord God, I ask that as these individuals who join through the broadcast and are here present in the auditorium, I've heard your word explained this morning and proclaimed that you would use that in the midst of our life this week, next week, this month, this year, for whatever years you have for us remaining on this planet, God, let us be those who would shine in our neighborhoods, that people in our community would know that we stand apart, that we are different because of the presence of Jesus in us. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to make choices accordingly, that everyone would know that we stand with you and you are in us. I pray for that, Father, in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who made the greatest atonement for us ever. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.